On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The thing about Meridian, Mississippi, no matter where you're from, it feels like home. Oh, we've got the big city amenities. And we get down to business with the best of them. But we like to take life at a little slower pace. We find it's just more enjoyable that way. When we ask, what can we do for you? We mean it. It's no wonder they say Meridian offers a better longitude on life. Truth is, it's hard to describe us in just a few words. We're strong and caring. In Meridian, we remember where we came from and the people who helped make our city what it is today. We're proud to do our part to keep our country protected and safe as we stride confidently into a future of promise and hope. Meridian is a great place for kids to grow up and go to school, and it offers the kinds of opportunities to make them want to stay and raise families of their own, to put down roots that last a lifetime. story, I realized early on that in order to talk about Meridian, I need to know Meridian. An informational video on the city's website was a decent place to start, but obviously wasn't going to give the most accurate depiction. So I dug a little deeper. Okay, here's a quick history lesson. Meridian is located about 90 miles east of Jackson, the state capital, and it's the sixth largest city in Mississippi population roughly 37,000. Meridian earned itself the title Strategic Center of the South as it built its economy on railroads and the transportation of goods, while also maintaining a focus on manufacturing, healthcare, and military. It's the home of the Meridian Naval Air Station that has been around since its establishment in 1961, providing thousands of jobs to residents. Outside of that, Meridian is pretty simple Nothing flashy. Arguably the biggest celebrity to come out of Meridian is Jimmy Rogers, a famous country singer-songwriter from the early 1900s. And if you research places to visit in town, you're pointed to a historic carousel located in Highland Park. Like I said, pretty simple. As far as government goes, 
Meridian operates under a mayor council form. So upon learning this, I googled Meridian Mississippi mayor. Since 2013, Percy Bland has been the mayor of Meridian. He was last re-elected in 2017. The same year, Percy was involved in a fight at a youth baseball game, which I stumbled on after clicking on the video's link. To be fair, he was trying to break up the fight, and he didn't throw any punches, but a fellow Meridian police officer threw plenty. I then clicked on the news link, and I learned this was also the same year that mayoral candidate Mariner Durant was found dead in the woods on his property. His death was ruled a suicide, but the circumstances were definitely suspicious. He dropped out of the race shortly before his death for security reasons. Quote, I'm just following what law enforcement tells me to do. Interestingly, one of his main goals was to open a citywide criminal investigation and audit, which I realized would have been a great idea after researching crime rates in Meridian. I'll just say, they're not good. But how does Christian fit into this, into Meridian? Well, to be honest, he didn't really fit in. For the last few months of his life, he made Meridian his home, but that doesn't mean it ever felt like home to him. Dale Wood was home. Christian moved to Meridian out of convenience, or inconvenience, whichever way you look at it. He and Whitley couldn't stay at Ray and Todd's house together, so if he wanted to be with her, he had to move. And so when he decided to move, he chose a place that was in close proximity to work and to his family. He didn't want to start a new life in Meridian per se, it just made sense at the time. But he talked a lot about getting out of there and moving to another city. He felt there had to be a better fit for him. Of course, that opportunity never came, and his life met an unexpected end on February 26, 2014. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. We've talked about that day, what we know of Christian's activity, and how Whitley and Dylan are linked to it. But we haven't really focused on the city's role in all of this. 
specifically the Meridian Police, and their investigation. When I first became familiar with this case and started reading through the MPD report that Ray had shared with me, I immediately noticed some red flags. There were so many things wrong with the handling of this case from the get-go. So on that note, let's go back to the crime scene, right after Dylan placed the 911 call. At approximately 5 p.m., Officer Legoy arrives at the scene. He was the first to arrive. Officer Legoy met Dylan at the front door, and he directed him to the upstairs bathroom. Legoy walked upstairs to assess the scene and saw Christian laying over the side of the tub with a gunshot wound to his head. He did not notice a weapon at the scene at first. EMTs and Detective Wilburn arrived shortly after 5.08 p.m., and Detective Thompson and Detective Scott arrived shortly after. While conducting a gunshot residue test on Christian, officers noticed the butt of the pistol sticking out from under Christian's thigh. They took photographs of the scene and a few from around the apartment. After the coroner removed the body, they collected the gun from under the body and a bullet casing that was found in the tub and placed them into evidence. Officers conducted gunshot residue tests on Whitley and Dylan and then escorted them to the station to get their statements. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem like they did anything wrong. But what speaks more are all the things they did not do that they should have. Discrepancies that were never addressed, questions that were never asked, various things that should have been done if considering the possibility of foul play. But in Christian's case, it seemed to be an assumed suicide from the very beginning. The investigation, start to finish, lasted less than an hour. There's no indication in the report of any DNA samples or fingerprints taken from the crime scene. I've said this before, but the two people who were at the apartment when police arrived, Whitley and Dylan, were questioned by police, but they were never interrogated. There's a big difference there. Not a single challenging question was thrown at them, despite the fact that there were inconsistencies in their statements. On top of that, Whitley lied about having Christian's phone, and that didn't seem to raise any suspicions. And when the gunshot residue results came back, showing that both Whitley and Dylan had residue on their hands, not even that was enough to ask more questions. When Detective Wilburn called the family to give them the news, MPD had already concluded that it was a suicide, without having results of an autopsy or any other forensic work. A command that came from Chief Lee, who actually went to the scene to tell detectives to wrap it up. Lee was the chief of police at the time of Christian's death. He was appointed by Mayor Percy Bland in 2013. Lee was the first person Ray and Todd reached out to to try and have Christian's case reinvestigated. Here's Ray. Lee, I had met with him and basically, you know, said, hey, are are y'all going to do anything? And I would like MBI to come in because we had been told that MBI was kind of the premier law enforcement of Mississippi, and that's what needed to happen. And he was very arrogant and refused and said that, you know, they would continue to handle this, but that at that point they were considering it a suicide and that until they got the gunshot residue results back, they weren't doing anything. That was the initial meeting with Chief Lee and Sharp, and he was over the investigators and he was present. Basically, they were saying we're not going to do anything until we have a reason to think it was something other than a suicide. 
But Wilburn was the detective that was assigned, and he, to this day, has never returned a phone call. We called and called and called, I would say, probably 20 or 30 times, and he never once returned a phone call. Then, about two months, Lee resigned, or like I said, got fired, one or the other, and Buck Roberts was appointed interim. So I went and met with him and asked him would he allow MBI to come in. And he said he didn't have a problem with that because basically MBI has to be asked to assist. So he contacted them, but then there was a long period of time, I think there were several months, it seems like, before they ever actually came in and met with us. Shortly after this, Ray and Todd received a copy of the coroner's report. In his report, he listed the cause of death as undetermined, which surprised the Andriacchios and only gave them more reason to keep pushing forward. So they did. And just a month later, they caught a break when Mayor Bland fired Chief Lee, citing a loss of confidence in Lee's ability to lead the department. This was likely tied to sexual harassment claims against Lee that surfaced earlier that year. Needless to say, they let him go. And in place of Lee, Mayor Bland appointed Interim Chief Buck Roberts. Ray and Todd took this opportunity to meet with Roberts and ask him to get MBI involved in the case. Lee had initially told them no, but Roberts didn't have a problem with it, so he initiated the process, and the Andriacchio started working with MBI in May of 2014. We'll get to MBI in the next episode. For now, let's stick with MPD's involvement after MBI concluded their investigation in November 2014. So, I guess after MBI wrapped up, and that was kind of over with, that's when I started back harassing Meridian Police Department. Uh, They got a little break from me for a little bit, and then we went back because then MBI had kind of bowed out, and they'd done their report, and they said, we're done. That's really our job, is to give a report, and then the DA and Meridian Police Department decide you know, how they'll use that information. But Meridian Police Department, according to them, what we were told, never got a copy of the report. I mean, to this day, I think they say they don't have a copy of the report. In the interim time, Dubose had been appointed as the permanent chief. When he was appointed, it was in July, August of 2015, he told me that He had hired this new investigator. He used to work for MPD, but he had quit and gone full-time military. And he was being hired to do nothing but cold cases. And that he had already assigned him, his first case was gonna be Christian's case. So we waited and waited for him to start. And every time I'd call, they would say, well, you know, he's got to go to training or he's got to do this. And so it was several months before he ever started actually talking to us, and that was um, Jerry Bratu. Looking back now, I think that his sole purpose was to stall until the three-year statute of limitations was up because he did absolutely nothing. In the year and a half that we dealt with him, I don't know that he talked to one person. He basically was a go-between for us and Bilbo. Bilbo is a name to make note of. Bilbo Mitchell. He was the DA at the time. Well, we went and met with him initially, Todd and I both. 
And, you know, at first, again, we were kind of hopeful because he talked a good game and he said that he was giving him some time, that he was going to look over everything. You know, then he would start asking around some questions. Well, we gave him a little bit of time, probably a few weeks, and then nothing, still hadn't heard from him. So then we start emailing and texting and, or I don't think I had it. He, he was smart enough not to give me his cell phone number, but I had his email address. He did this little thing where, well, you know, we don't have the money, but it really would have been good if there was like a crime scene reconstruction, you know, but we just, we don't have the money for that. And we don't really have the, we, the technology for all that. So I go out, start looking for crime scene reconstruction. I mean, he didn't ask us to do it. It was almost like he was saying, you know, we really can't do anything with this case. And that was kind of his excuse because time has gone by and we don't have the experience or the know-how to do the things that need to be done since this is a cold case. So I start researching crime scene reconstruction people. In her search, Ray found and hired a crime scene reconstructionist to work the case. We'll get into more of the details of his findings in a future episode. But as it pertains to MPD, the reconstructionist company, Knox & Associates, issued a report with the determination that Christian's death was a staged suicide. The report was then given to Bratsu. And so then when we got that report, we thought, okay, well, this is going to be it. They've got actual forensics that say that this was a staged suicide. Well... Brad wasn't real impressed with Knox and Associates. He never really commented too much on it. It wasn't a big eye-opening thing for him. So then we started talking about the DNA, I think. Yeah, we we found, found out one. about the DNA, and that was on the gun. Someone offhand made a comment to Ray that the DNA sample off the gun was too small for the crime lab to test, which of course piqued Ray's interest. Ray started researching forensic labs that could work with small samples of DNA and get information from it. They said they would look into it, but Ray beat them to it and found a lab that said they couldn't necessarily identify a person, but they could rule out people, which in this case would be helpful. She told Bratu about this. Bratu started talking to Bilbo because Bilbo had to give permission for the crime lab to release it to an outside lab. Well, we wasted months probably with that. Then he said, well, I've got to get Bilbo to give permission. Bilbo initially acted like he might. Then he said, well, you know, it's not the lab. An outside lab isn't going to be CODIS approved. The CODIS system Ray is referring to here is the FBI's software platform where various DNA samples can be stored and searched. DNA profiles are obtained from a crime and stored in this system. Well, our argument was, why does it have to be CODIS approved? Because none of the people who are connected with this have ever been arrested. I mean, they're not going to be in the CODIS system. So that was about the time that Bilbo went to Jacksonville and met with Knox and Associates. So it was waiting for him to give us permission or waiting for him to give the crime lab permission to send out the DNA when he goes down there and then Bratu tells us, well, Bilbo is real positive about, you know, what Knox and Associates had to say and he thinks he has enough for murder. And so, of course, we kind of forgot about the DNA. 
because it was like, you know, oh, okay, well, he's fixing to come back and he's fixing to have some people arrested. So the DNA kind of dropped to the wayside and all of that. Well, we, he came back and we waited and we waited and nothing happened. And so we start harassing Bratu again. And in the course of that, he and I had had some disagreements over some different things that he had told. I kept pushing him to go and talk or interview Whitley and Dylan because nobody had ever just questioned them. They had given a statement, and that was it. Well, he kept telling me that he couldn't talk to Whitley because Whitley was a minor. I mean, at that time, she was seven, I guess, had not quite turned 18. And I, you know, was like, well, I don't understand why you can't talk to her. I mean, you know, go out and question her or talk to her. I mean whether she's 17 or not. And he just kept saying, well, she's a minor and we can't do anything. And she lives out in the county and I'm in the city and I can't just go out to the county and talk to somebody. So I send him a letter where it has all these kids in Mississippi who have been arrested for murder that are 14 and 15 years old and I, you know, I sent it to him and said, well, I guess you need to go talk to some of these investigators because they must know how to interview a minor. Well, then he sends me an email back saying that there was a misunderstanding, that, that I didn't understand what he was saying. And I was like, well, no, I, you've told me multiple times the same thing. You can't go out in the county and question a minor. I went down there one night, it was late one evening, and I called and said, can I come down there and talk to you? I went down, he said, sure, went down there. He's telling me how he is waiting for the coroner to get over being mad at Meridian Police Department because right now he's mad at them because they had had some conflict at a crime scene and the coroner always takes pictures at crime scenes. And he's hoping that the coroner's pictures are better than theirs. And that if I'll give it a few weeks, well, then he's going to go talk to the coroner and get his pictures because he thinks that's going to help the case. And I said, you know, well, sure, that's fine. But I would have thought the coroner would have already told us about these pictures if he had pictures because we've talked to the coroner before. And he's like, no, no, he doesn't um, really let people know he does this. Well, we had the coroner's phone number. So as soon as I left the office, my brother calls and asks him, you know, what about these pictures? And he tells him, I don't know what you're talking about. And Chris, you know, tells him, well, Bratu is saying that you take your own crime scene pictures, basically. He said, I've never taken a picture at a crime scene in my career. He said, that's their job. That's not my job. So then... Of course, I'm furious because he's lied to me again. So I send him another letter and basically blast him about how we have talked to Cobbler and Cobbler says he doesn't know what that Bratu is talking about, that he's never taken pictures at crime scenes. So then I get another response back saying, I must have misunderstood. Clearly things weren't going well with Bratu. And as if things hadn't been bad enough regarding his involvement, there was one final issue the Andriacchios ran into with him. So I think the last misunderstanding he and I had was when 
he kept telling us that, you know, he really should have, that Bilbo, after Bilbo went and talked to Knox and them, he comes back and he says, well, you know, it really would be good if we had luminol testing done in the apartment. And I said, well, yeah, that would be good, but I mean, who's going to do it? And he says, well, you know, I, I had never done it before, and I'm going to probably look it up on YouTube, and I'm going to try doing it. And I said, well, I don't know that I want somebody doing this that's never done it before. I mean, I wasn't going to be able to trust his findings if he's never done this before. And he says nobody there at the police department has any experience doing this. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to get Knox and Associates to come up here and do it. When, you know, he said, well, you know, I can't stop you from doing that. But, you know, we've also, he said, but let me look into it. So we wait and we wait. And we've already contacted Knox and Associates and said, you know, will you come up here and luminol the apartment? And they said, sure. So we're trying to coordinate this with Bratu so that Meridian Police Department can be a part of it and, you know, be present so that they can't say that anything is done improperly. And Bratu then says, well, we have a little problem. According to Bratu, the problem he ran into was that he spoke with the manager at the apartment complex. And she said that the city had to sign a letter taking liability if there was damage to the apartment during the luminol testing. But the city was unwilling to sign it. Ray offered to sign the letter herself, but Bratu said that wouldn't work. So Ray, unsure of what to believe, did some fact-checking. So we contact the manager. The manager says, I've never talked to Jerry Bratu. I don't know what he's talking about. I have no problem with anybody. We'll help do whatever. Um, you know, there was somebody that was in the apartment at this time. She said, I'll talk to her. I'm sure she'll be more than willing to allow them to come in if she knows that, you know, it could help. So sure enough, girl says it's not a problem. We never sign anything. She never asked us to sign anything. So I send Bratu a letter, basically say, you know, once again, you've lied. And this is just becoming a pattern. And basically, it seems to me that you and Bilbo are in some sort of conspiracy to make sure this case doesn't go anywhere. Well, then he then responds to me and says, you've misunderstood and I'm bowing out of this. I have requested to be taken off the case, which, of course, was fine with me because all he had done was lie to us and string us along for the last year and a half. Ray met with MPD again after Bratu resigned from the case. A new chief of police, Benny DuBose, had just been appointed. She set up a meeting with him and Lieutenant Sharp, but DuBose wouldn't be a part of the meeting. He stated he didn't think he should because he wasn't a part of this case from the beginning. Here's Ray. I, you know, basically was saying, you know, what's going on and why aren't y'all moving forward on this? And Sharp said, well, you know, we think we have some new information. And I said, well, you know, what is that? And he said, well, we've talked to Whitley. And Whitley told us that she actually doesn't think that Christian killed himself, that she thinks it was an accident, that he had had the trigger changed on his gun to a hair trigger, and that she thinks that it was just an accident. And I said, so what's going to happen when you find out that the trigger was not modified. And he said, well, we're going to have a problem then, and we're going to bring her back in. 
And I said, because I can tell you right now, the trigger wasn't modified. I said, you know, if anything had been done to that gun, it would have been done at place. And he has already said the gun wasn't modified. And he said, well, we've sent the gun to the crime lab for a drop test. And we're going to see if, you know, it malfunctions and if the trigger's been modified. And then he proceeded to say that, and we also have, you know, a witness now that puts Dylan at Best Buy. And I said, well, who would that be? And he says, well, I can't say the name, but he works for us now. And he has told us that he was there. He saw Dylan there that day. And I said, well, you would have to be talking about Jared Johnson, who was one of the Best Buy people that Dylan gave the name of and who now works for you on the police department. And I said, we have him on tape saying that he cannot say that whether or not Dylan was there or not. And he says, well, yeah, Gil, well, he's told us that he can. You know, at that point, I think I said, well, I'm gonna end this because y'all basically are just manufacturing information. So I guess after starting his new role with MPD, he was able to give a different account of that day. I never heard the new story, but as a refresher, here's the account that we acquired. On the day, I can't really, you know, remember who exactly. I feel like a ton of people a day. I was at work that day, but uh, I can't remember anything about the day or anything like that. As you can tell, Ray and Todd's experience with MPD has been one of great frustration. To the Andriacchios, it was clear that MPD was not actively working the case. And to make things worse, Ray claims they were sending her down various rabbit trails, presumably to get her off their backs. With the realization that MPD wasn't going to get them the help they needed, the Andriacchios sought help from an attorney, Cynthia Speechens, and a private investigator, Max Mays. Cynthia and Max were hired by the family and worked extensively on the case for years. To get started, I'd like to know how you got involved with the Andriacchios in this case. I became involved in December of 2014. I'd been doing some work with a criminal defense attorney over here since 2009. One day I got a call from him and asked me if I was interested in working on a case that was a private case that was a non-indicted case. It was a suicide, supposedly, but the mother did not believe it was a suicide. She had asked him about working on the case for her, and he insisted that she hire me to work with him. It was a little unusual because normally in cases they're already indicted, there's a suspect or a defendant or something like that. I get what is called a discovery, that's the law enforcement investigation files. But in this particular case, there was not any um, discovery because the case had been closed by law enforcement as a suicide. The only thing Mrs. Andriacchio had was information that she had gathered through other people that had been hired prior to me and some sketchy information about what had happened to her son. Anyway, she sent me all of that prior to our meeting, and I looked at what she had sent me, and based on what I had in my possession at that time, and based on the evidence that was there, I decided that it was something worth looking into. You probably ought to tell them your background. Well, I worked for 10 years with the Jackson Police Department. I worked the patrol division. I worked 
narcotics for five years. I worked 13 years with the uh, Hines County District Attorney's Office. A lot of those, most of those years with Cynthia there. 2005, I retired. At the encouragement of some prosecutors and some public defenders, I started doing some work for criminal defense attorneys, something I thought would last for about six months. <laughs> so, and it's uh, 13 years later, and, and I'm still doing it. And I specialize in, in murders and capital murders, cases like that, people on death row. I, I, I do death row cases and stuff. That's my background. Well, I started a good bit after Max. I had a a friend, a mutual friend of Ray Andriacchio and mine called me up and said, I have a friend whose son was killed, and the police have ruled it a suicide, and she does not believe that it is, and she just wants to talk to somebody in the criminal world, and I am, well, that sounds a little funny, but I'm, I was a prosecutor for a long time, and now I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Done it about half and half over the course of the last 40 years. And so she made an appointment with me, and she came to talk to me, and sort of anticipated that it would be a mother who simply could not accept a suicide, because that's so common. And over the years, I've certainly dealt with suicides and people who, family members, just couldn't abide the thought of it. So that's kind of what I was expecting, and I was sort of expecting to just be comforting and all of that. And then she started telling me about this case, and she gave me a whole, whole lot of information, which was a little difficult to process right off the bat. But when she got to the point where Dylan Swearingen opened the door and found the body, but yet there was blood spatter on the exterior of the door, I started paying attention because that did not add up. And it went from there. I mean, over the next, well, I guess that was in about January of 16, I think. And I've been amassing information either from her or from other people's interviews or Max and other sources ever since. And it gets worse and worse and worse, the more you know, in terms of the outrageousness of this being considered a suicide. To come to a conclusion that this was a suicide takes some real gymnastics. They note in their report that he has shot himself through the right side of the head with his right hand, theoretically with his head in the bathtub. But his weapon, uh, it's a Kimber 45, was found wedged between his left thigh and the bathtub now, there's some physics for you. Manually decocked. Now, he did not pick the gun back up and put it between his left thigh and the bathtub after having fired that shot, much less did he manually decock the weapon and then put it between his left thigh and the bathtub. They document that, but that doesn't lead them to ask more questions. This was a 45-minute investigation. 45 minutes. It was called to a halt by a police chief that had nothing to do with the investigation. Well, that's not how investigations work. If I'm a homicide investigator and I'm called to a scene and I am the lead investigator, that is my case. And it's hard to get law enforcement to understand this. You may be the chief of police, but you're not the chief investigator on this case. And you should not 
tell me how to conduct an investigation or when to stop an investigation, but it happens. In this case, an investigation is stopped within 45 minutes, and from all indications at that point, nothing else was really ever done on the case. A total of 45 minutes on, a, on an investigation that is ruled a suicide by someone who is not in a position to rule it to be anything. You're not the coroner. You're not the pathologist that does the autopsy or anything. It's not your call. That's what a lot of people don't understand in law enforcement is when you go to a homicide scene or a suicide scene, it is not your call to determine what the manner and cause of death is. That's a whole nother ball game over there. Somebody else does that. That's not your job. But law enforcement has a tendency to say, oh, well, Richard there's got five bullets over there. Well, he died from five gunshot wounds. Is that necessarily true? It may not be. Richard may have died from strangulation. He may have died from poisoning or some, somebody may have later shot him and stuff. But you don't make that call. It's not your call to do that. Rulings in homicide cases are not made until the evidence is collected and you get back the pathological findings or the autopsy results. You don't conclude that someone committed suicide without all of that, but within 45 minutes, some genius decides that this is a suicide. You don't have autopsy results. You don't have the results of the gunshot residue tests or anything. You have not conducted, and in this case, the use of the word investigation is... Grandiose. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good word for it, because there was none. There was, there was a what I call a collection of evidence Police officers went out there, they collected evidence. The crime scene techs came in and they collected evidence. Some they talked to a couple of witnesses, the two witnesses there at the house, and that was the end of it. It's almost as if they just wrote things down that people told them, and that was pretty much it. They had to be forced into accepting any other information, not even a different opinion, but just any other information. when. There was so much information that, from the outset, negated what they thought. If memory serves me correctly, I don't think they really ever interviewed anybody. Other than saying about the cooperation for the people of Best Buy, I don't think they really interviewed anybody. Who should they interview? Well, had they done a lot of things. Friends, talking to the people that are... Uh, she was supposedly out shooting with the night before and stuff, getting verification because you got two. We found out, you, you know, that there's two totally different stories. She said I was shooting a gun, and the people that she was out there with said, no, she didn't shoot a gun that night. So somebody somewhere is lying. So why wouldn't you have talked to these people? There was a foregone conclusion, and in order to get from point A to point B, which is the foregone conclusion, I have to fill in and make it work. And that's what they've done in this. Every agency that has been involved in the Christian Andriacchio death have filled in information to make sure that their foregone conclusion is correct. And that's not how you conduct an investigation. Investigations are based on evidence. And that's all it's based on. You look at the evidence and the evidence speaks for itself. You don't go in there with any conclusions. It's just the whole thing is really weird, and, and as time has gone on, 
they have spent a lot of time trying to justify what they did not do. You, you know, I, I know there's such things incompetent law enforcement, but it does not take a genius to figure out that there's something wrong with this case. But you basically just turn a blind eye or you commit yourself to proving that what you initially alleged to be a suicide is a suicide and everybody else is wrong if they want to say that it's a murder instead of a suicide. It's like there are all these elephants of evidence in the room and they've got to go around the walls in order to avoid it almost. <laughs> it just throws me. I don't know. I just I have so much compassion for this family because besides the fact that, you know, they've lost a son and a brother and a nephew and all of this, it's as if nobody even cares enough to ask a question. That's got to be really tough to take. In this particular case, so you have a lady and her family, Ray Andriacchio, who has spent an untold amount of money trying to find out what happened to her son. She's not just doing that because she is of the belief, and I, and I truly believe this about Miss Andriacchio. If the evidence had been presented to her and it was so strong that my son committed suicide, she would have accepted that. It's unacceptable in this case. And it's unacceptable what has been done to her and her family by those that love to say we are here to serve and protect. Serving and protecting means that you do what is right. You serve Mrs. Andreapio and her family by doing what is right. You protect people like the Andreapios from someone that probably murdered their son by doing what is right. You don't go out here and protect yourself from incompetence and a sloppy job. I've been doing this for a long time, and this is not the first case I've run into that got issues like this. In the end, someone is going to be held accountable because Mrs. Andreapio is not going to give up. Unless someone comes to her with something concrete, which will never happen, that proves beyond any doubt that her son killed himself, she's not going to stop. So for those out there that have been involved in this investigation, who helped to botch this investigation, shame on you. That's, that's the only thing I can say about it. And I would say to the day I go to my grave or to somebody prove me exactly wrong, Christian Andreacchio did not commit suicide. Left with a miserable experience, dealing with MPD, and an overwhelming feeling that they were never going to listen or help her, Ray decided to put her feelings on paper. She sat down one night and laid everything out in a letter. She asked the local newspaper, the Meridian Star, to print the letter and offered to buy ad space, but they refused. And she then called the Clarion Ledger, and they also refused. It was important to me that she had an opportunity to read her letter and finally have it heard. It's titled, An Open, open letter, letter to, to the, the People, people Who Hold the Fate, the fate of, my of My Son in Their Hands. When a parent loses a child, their world stops. It is the closest thing to experiencing your own death while still living and breathing. 
but you are living and breathing and you do still have other children and other responsibilities, so you carry on. And as time goes by and people move on to another tragedy or celebrate their own milestones, you continue to tread water. Half of the time wishing you would drown and the other half of the time feeling guilty that you don't. And time keeps going by. Time that can heal most wounds, but not all. The only thing worse for a parent than the death of a child is the death of a child by violence. A totally avoidable tragedy if the person who killed your child had, what, made better choices? They say when you have a child die that you join the club, a club that no one wants to be a member of. And when you have a child murdered, you become a member of a club that is much smaller and comes with its own unique challenges. One challenge that I did not expect and should not have expected was the fight to find justice for my child. Years filled with sadness, overwhelming grief, frustration, disbelief, disillusionment, and anger. Prior to my son's death, I never had much interaction with law enforcement. Ironically, I voted for some of the people who later would betray me. I foolishly thought most people are inherently good and would do the right thing. It is a different type of betrayal when people you're raised your entire life to respect and follow do not show you the same courtesy or even empathy when you need it the most. Over the years, there has been frequent interaction with local and state law enforcement. The interactions have been widespread in range of personalities displayed. Some have been apathetic and disinterested, not taking the time to put themselves in my position and thinking, what if this was my child? Others have truly appeared to be concerned, but have been stifled by those who want to maintain the status quo. If I don't ask, I don't have to tell. And then there are those who didn't even bother returning my calls because what would they say? They couldn't tell the truth. That would be bad for so many people now. So they just didn't call feeling this made them less culpable. But of all of those people, the worst were those two or three that smiled sadly, patted my hand, and told me as they led me out of their office that they were going to take care of everything. And then as soon as I left, they were planning ways to keep justice from happening. Dishonest people, people with no conscience, people who were not much better than the criminals they were sometimes incarcerating when they deemed fit. Not when a jury reached a judgment, but when they reached their judgment. Not caring that they were playing with the emotions of not one person, but an entire family of grieving souls. Not caring that we could reach an almost euphoric high when we received a phone call of hope, but could come crashing down to the lowest low a day later when they did not follow through with what they had promised. A roller coaster of emotions that was only made worse by the incessant waiting and waiting, and more waiting. Today, we decided the waiting was over. We could not sit by any longer and hope that people would do the right thing. Hope that this did not happen to another person's child. Hope that somehow justice would prevail. We know these individuals do not encapsulate or set the standard for all law enforcement. I know there are many wonderful, dedicated people who put their life on the line every day for the safety of others. I am friends with several officers who are dedicated to their job. 
Unfortunately, those people were not investigating my son's case. Those people were not in positions of authority to make a difference in my son's case. My son's name is Christian Shane Andriacchio. He was 21 years old when he was murdered. Christian's story needs to be told. In January of 2017, MPD brought in a new detective named Jay Arrington. He was assigned to Christian's case. And after he was brought in, Ray and Todd called a meeting with Chief DuBose and Detective Arrington. Max, Cynthia, and Ray's brother, Chris, were also present. And in this meeting, they gained some unsettling insight as to why Christian's case hadn't progressed. Arrington was kind of, you know, kind of introduced himself to the group and just basically, I don't know really anything too much about this case. I'm going to do my best, but I don't think anything will ever come of it. I think that I'm wasting my time because as long as Bilbo is involved, nothing's ever going to be done. And then Dubose made that comment, you know, we said, well, why? And Dubose just kind of smiled and said, well, let's just say he has a personal interest in this case. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are Jacob Bozarth, Mark Mennery, Dennis Cooper, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme music and score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, cover art by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, CulpablePodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.